Welcome to Livecast with Brian Lee. Today I have a very special guest. Not really a guest because he is uh, my best friend. He is my brother from the same mother. And we have known each other since I was born. Corey is eight years older than me. I'm 33. He is 41. About to be 42. And just a little bit here. Um, Corey and I have had... Uh, while while we have grown up in the same house, uh, we've had, I would say, vastly different upbringings, you know, same moral foundations, but I think we've had v- various different experiences. Uh, you lived in Atlanta, you've lived in Chicago, you lived in Southern California, you lived in Northern California. I've lived in the Chicago, Atlanta area, Rockford, Minneapolis, and Dallas. I've I've stayed in the central time zone my whole life. <laughs> uh, I think you've lived in every time zone, and so uh, so we we've got we got vastly different experiences. Um, and Corey, right now, uh, racism, racial reconciliation, social justice is a hot topic. Uh, but you were talking about it. Long before it was trending, long before it was uh, something plausible, uh, I would even say you've even taken some licks for talking about racism when it wasn't uh, a national uh, story. I mean, 2020 is just a crazy year, bro. It's just, it's it's like, a, it's, it's a biblical year, man. We got plagues and violence and... and people I mean, forget about the plagues. In Africa? Yeah, yeah. Hey, that, that got COVID just... Yeah, COVID, just I mean, right COVID, COVID wiped out everything. The, the, we had these murder hornets, you know, conversation. And then, like, I, I saw this, uh, I saw that somebody text me. You know, sometimes you gotta laugh at the stuff to keep from crying. But, like, somebody text me that COVID lost a 28 to three lead to racism. Like referring to the, to the Falcons and Patriots Super Bowl. Like <laughs> that, like that COVID was all anybody was talking about. And then Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And then now, you know, it's like, is there still a virus? Like, the, cause if you watch the news, you don't even hear about the numbers. You don't hear about curves. You don't hear any of that stuff because racism is such a, a, a huge topic now. So, Corey uh, has been having this conversation about race for a long time, long before it was popular. Corey has a podcast. Uh, he has a church community. Uh, Corey, tell us a little bit more about your podcast. So my podcast is Existential, and I called it Existential because um, my limited understanding of existentialism is that it's about um, kind of the absurdity of human existence, you know, things that happen in the world that, that like you're trying to explain it and make sense of it, making sense of ideas about God in fa- in the face of injustice and, and world hunger and those sorts of things. And so I, um, in a lot of the reading I've been doing, you know, came across this term existentialism quite a bit. And I started saying that I was an existential Christian. Um, and so as I was thinking about the podcast and like what I wanted to talk about, I didn't want my podcast to just be about race. Um, and so I, I, there's something about that to me, even still that I, re- I resent the notion that I as a black man can only be qualified 
and, and a thought leader on issues of race, that I can't be a thought leader on theology or uh, on the Bible, on God, on life, on marriage and children. It has to be something specific to the race. And so with the podcast, I, I thought, what could I call it that captures that I want to talk about justice, I want to talk about faith, and I want to talk about culture, and I want to talk about it in a way that allows people to wrestle with whatever it is they believe. So on on the Existential Podcast, we've had people from the LBGTQ plus community. We have had, I've had conversations with former Christians, with, uh, with Linda Sarsour, who is a Palestinian Muslim um, and who was the co-founder of the Women's March. I've uh, had conversations with Science Mike of the Liturgist Podcast, conversations with Shane Claiborne. Um, my good friend Andre Henry has been on the podcast. So, and it's all been conversations about life, about us telling our stories or listening to each other's stories and, and seeing like the common thread and who, who all of us are as human beings and where we, where, where we see God. One of the differences between you and I is I'm raising mixed children. You and Julie are raising three beautiful daughters that are full-bred African-American. And what, what's that like? What's that like raising three Black daughters in America? Yeah, it's amazing, man. It's, it is a beautiful gift from God to be able to do so. I wholeheartedly believe in black girl magic. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've watched it happen. I've watched them. What is, what, what is black girl magic? Black girl magic is a hashtag that started, um, I think it was around Simone Biles in the Olympics. Uh, and I think with some other black folks, black gymnasts in the Olympics and their, their excellence caused people to start using the hashtag black girl magic. So I, once I saw that, I started using it being a father of black daughters anytime, you know, Anytime a, a black woman does something excellent in, in society, you know, you'll see the hashtag black girl, black girl magic. I used it for, uh, I think it's Cicely Taylor, I think is her name, the, the, the 90 year old actress in How to Get Away with Murder. The, uh, I think I saw an episode, I think I saw an episode she was in, and I said black girl magic because it's amazing to be 90 years old and still be able to act the way that she does. So anytime there's something um, in society, where a black woman achieves, I think that hashtag is so important because, you know, oftentimes you, you hear this phrase that black women are a double minority. They're, you're a woman and you're black. So you've got like, you've got two strikes against you as you exit into, into the world. So I, I consider it a real honor to be the, the father of independently strong, funny, beautiful, smart, caring, kind, loving, Black women. Amaya just graduated from high school yesterday. Um, our town is about seventy to eighty percent white. Um, so she, it, it was heartbreaking for me as a father to to number one to see your daughter graduate is just like, you know, that's just. I mean, you're just like, where did the time go? You, you you start thinking about, you start asking yourself, was I present enough? Like, was I like when when I when I could push her on the swing? When I was at the bottom of the slide, you know, when I was watching her at youth soccer games, was I present? Was my phone put away enough? Right. It's what you start thinking. But um, additionally, um, with, you know, black children, you have other thoughts. Like yesterday, she sat on the couch and she read this letter that she wrote her freshman year to herself. So she took it out. It's four pages long. She's reading it. And in those four pages, it's you know, a bunch of, bunch of stuff that like, you know, she's asking herself, where are you going to college? And 
Are you proud of who you become? You know, how's, how, how, how's your face? How's your hair? How are your nails? Is this boy still cute? Are you still friends with this person? Uh, on three different occasions throughout this four-page letter, my daughter asked her, asked her future self if racism was still a thing in her school. Are, is so-and-so still racist? Is, have you still been resisting racism? How is the racism in our school? No freshman in 2016 should have had to write that letter. And no senior in 2020 should have to read that, knowing that a lot has not changed when it comes to that. So raising black children is, you know, I have daughters, I can't imagine with black sons, how fearful parents might be about them being out and driving. We had to have the, the driving conversation with, you know, my, my children, when they started driving, I got two who are of age to drive. I had to talk to them about what to do. I had to talk to my middle daughter after um, George Floyd. And she, she, I said, how are you doing? She said, I'm afraid that if you get pulled over, something could happen. Um, having to have that conversation as a father, like with your daughter, you know, um, I, I know that should we get pulled over together today, there'd be a lot of anxiety in our car. Um, there could potentially be some tears in our car. Um, they are on social media. So even if I, as a parent, wanted to shelter them from this stuff, which I don't, but even if I did want to shelter them from it, I couldn't. So I'll just say this uh, last thing about that. Um, this is not about me as a parent, but another black parent I know, uh, my brother-in-law, he works in corporate America, um, is, is very high up in some organizations. And since George Floyd's um, lynching and murder, he has gotten a lot of calls from some white executives, just, you know, you know, the same as we've gotten. Our phones and, and inboxes are full of people calling, okay? So he, in one conversation, um, he, when he was having with this, this white executive, he started talking about his, his son. He, they have twins. He has a, a twin boy and a twin girl. They're the cutest kids you'll ever see in your life, okay? Adorable little black babies two years old, just now talking, gabbing. They, they, they are just learning to talk to feed themselves, running all over the house. And he said, I don't really have a lot of time to talk about this right now because I'm coming to the realization that I cannot keep my son safe. It, it like freaking wrecked me, bro, to hear, because I'm, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm seeing little buddy, we call him, who I've, who I've played with, run around with, you know, bought him a couple balls and thrown with him to think about that one point that was Ahmaud Arbery. That was George Floyd. That was Trayvon Martin. That was Stephon Clark. Um, that was Sean Reed. That was Mike Brown. That was Philando Castile. That was Alton Sterling. That was Emmett Till. At one point, all of them were a two-year-old with a ball in their hands playing with an uncle or dad. And when I heard BJ say, I'm afraid I cannot keep that boy safe. I just, <laughs> I was I couldn't, I was just like, that's where we are. And that's what it is to be parents of black children. So your daughter graduated yesterday. What, what's your biggest fear for her future as she goes and in my mind, she's always going to be a little girl. She's never going to be grown in my mind. But she's she's a grown woman. And 
um, maybe too grown. Um, True. But what do you have? Do you have a, a fear for her being able to choose to go anywhere in the world and build a life? And yeah, I mean, you know, there's a when you live inside of a traumatic situation you know how to calibrate the trauma. You know, like, like there are places in the world where children run around with automatic, you know, weapons, right? And it's no thing for them. When I went to Israel and, I, and as I'm walking around Israel, I'm seeing armed military guard standing outside and it was jarring to me. We actually were on our, on our bus tour. We had uh, someone from the military get on our bus with a, 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 a weapon drawn walk through the bus just i think to check it or whatever and it's jarring to me but it's that's a tuesday for people in other parts of the world i think that when we're talking about racism and, and talking about what it is to be black in america um there are some things that i don't know about you but i've shared some stories with white folks that have happened in our family you know that we've experienced in our lives with with racism that they've been like are you serious and like we, I shared it like I shared with you, like yeah, you know, it was, it was a Thursday, X, Y, and Z happened, we, and we just sort of shrugged it off. So um, when I when I say what I'm afraid of when it comes to my daughter, it's it's this. I'm not overly afraid of COVID nineteen. I have the same fear COVID nineteen that I have of police violence. I don't think it's likely that I'm going to get COVID nineteen, but I know it's out there. And I'm aware of it. I'm aware that it's something that is killing people, but it's not something I think I'm, I'm going to get this. I, I come home, I wash my hands, I do what I can. In the same way with my daughter being black, I don't have an irrational amount of fear that it's a given she's going to go out into the world and experience some anti-black violence. But I do know that that's out there. I know, I know that I can't rule that out as, as something that could happen to her. Um, I, I guess my greatest fear for her would be that she struggles to find a career, um, that she, being a black woman, doesn't have the same opportunities because of her lack of privilege. She has some privilege who doesn't have white privilege, that she uh, may not get some opportunities to show how smart, brilliant, how much of a leader she is. Um, I got a question. Your daughter's names are Amaya, Morgan, and Gabby. If, mm-hmm. if an employer are looking, if an employer is looking at both of their resumes, there's no picture on it. Do you believe that there's a higher likelihood that Gabby and Morgan will get hired over Amaya? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Morgan, Morgan probably has the most, um, you know, ethnic neutral name, you know, Morgan. I mean, even probably even gender neutral name to be, I mean, Morgan could be a boy. You'd see Morgan League on a resume and go, this could be a, this could be a white man. This could be a Latino girl. I don't know who this is. Right. You see Gabrielle, you may think Latino, um, you that you're you know you 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 may think white but you're likely thinking an, a person of color you see amaya and you're you're likely as you think she's black and i think you know in that there's studies have shown 
that resumes, you know, that's, that's an absolute thing for resumes, for loans, for um, renting property, all of those things. That's, that's, that's a known fact. So there's that that is sort of stacked against them, even though we chose to name them names, um, you know, that we liked. We, we didn't, you know, we didn't name them um, names that we, you know, sometimes some people name their kids things that you, that you go, where did that come from? You know, like, where, where'd you hear that? People should be able to name their kids whatever they want to. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there are certain names that certainly trigger an idea about a child. And I think Amaya might be one of those names. And, and you know, I, I do have some concern over, over that. But again, as a parent, here's, here's the other thing as a black parent, that you always have to manage this tension of you want your child to believe as they go out into the world they can fly as high as they want to. But a black parent has to also temper that by saying, you can fly as high as you want to, but here's what's stacked against you. Like, here's what the world, how the world will see you and how the world will treat you. Now, don't let that bog you down. You still fly hard. And, and so when, when black folks enter into the world angry, of course they are, because that's the kind of energy you have to have to fly as high as a black person gets to fly, because you've got a bunch of resistance when you leave the nest to try to fly high that you got to fly with some fury and some aggression just to get to where you want to get. Man, I, I, w- I wish, you know, obviously we talk five times a day. There's so many conversations I wish people could hear us having that have nothing to do with race. You know, um, the last dance documentary, um, the NBA returning, you know, I, you know, there can be somewhat of a racism conversation exhaustion during this time. Like there's some people, like every person I call, it's the subject. I'm just like, I just want to talk about the NBA. And then it's like, well, now we're going to talk about Drew Brees. It's like, okay. You know, it's like, it's, it's this constant thing of, you know, uh, people want to know, uh, how do you feel about Candace Owens? And, you know, like there's just, there's just a constant, constant thing. And uh, I uh, have a large Caucasian audience. I you'd speak to a lot of people here and I'd say, you know, probably 70% of them are, are white. And I've had a lot of white people, well-meaning white people. And we're not just talking about white leaders. I want to make that delineation. All right. We're, we're talking about your, your, your normal average everyday middle America, white suburban soccer mom, you know, that mm-hmm. is just going, I, I, I don't know what to do. I feel bad but I don't know what to tell my kids. I don't, I don't really know what to do. Um, they're, they're scrolling, they're swiping, you know, they're going, oh, oh okay, well, I'm supposed to speak up. So they Google a Martin Luther King Jr. quote and put it on their, their Twitter and they're like, okay, I said something, you know, I don't know if I want to say Black Lives Matter, but I'll just say, like, uh, I'm, I'm here for you. My heart breaks, you know, maybe a retweet, you know, they're not. They're not really sure what to do. And so if, if you could say, dear white people, you know, what's something practical that you would just advise them to do? Are there resources you would point them to? Is there are there voices yeah. they should be listening to? How, how would you what would you say if you could say, dear white people? Yeah, you've spoken to something I think is important. Right. It, the first thing you talked about was the exhaustion. Um, you know, it's exhausting for people, for black people who haven't been on the front lines of talking about race to talk about race. 
that is exponentially greater for people who have invested a good portion of their life in educating themselves and, and being outspoken about it, like myself and other colleagues of mine. Uh, I would say that one of the most important things to, to realize about um, re- anti-racism education is that Google and Bing and Yahoo never get tired. They're never exhausted. They're never grieving. They're never sad. They are never they 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 never wear down of people asking them, wow, for anti-racism resources. What a thought! I do. Like I, I I do wear down. I do have I do have a point where it's like I can I can physically no longer answer your questions about what you should do, and I think so. I and I understand like. People want human connection. They want to connect with a human being, and they, they want to ask their black friends. I, I wrote I wrote, recently wrote another piece called uh, "How Well Meaning White Folks Are Killing Their Black Friends," and, and this is one of the ways is is that. You and where know, can people find that? They can find that they, on. They can find that on my. You go to uh, my website, CoreyEvanLeak.com. CoreyEvanLeak.com. You can get everything from CoreyEvanLeak.com. That piece is also on. A lot of my work is also on Medium, um, but there's this, you know when you, you and I both know that the white person who reaches out to us with a question is the 70th one that day (laughs) with that same question, with that same sentiment. And so eventually, like you said, you just want to, I don't want to talk about race right now. I got to, somebody said to me yesterday, said, Hey, Hey brother, uh, (laughs) you, you got a quick moment to chat. I said, I don't, I don't have a moment to chat. I'm sorry. I don't. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't. Listen, if, if I make a podcast about it, I just, it's, I'm, I'm, it's, it's exhausting at some point. But, but here's, here's what you can do. Practical things you can do. Um, go to Google. Um, follow, like, the, the, the bulk resources that Ryan's putting out now with this podcast. I know your website has a Dear White, a Dear White People tab now. Um, I've been doing work and writing about this for some time. There are lots of black folks out there who've been doing that, putting this stuff out in bulk, read that work, um, uh, talk about it amongst your white friends, um, then patronize that work, put your money where your mouth is, put your, put, put, put resources into that. Uh, if there's a black business you can support, support that black business. If there is someone from whom you're getting anti-racism education, like myself, like you or anyone else who is taking the time to do this work right now, um, don't just consume it all for free. Um, you know, and one of the, one of the advice I've seen that I've loved the most, someone else wrote a piece, I don't even remember who wrote it, um, but it was a piece that talked about sort of the performative allyship, which is kind of the, this, this thing where you, you see something's trending and it's trending for you to talk about it. So you don't even know anything about it. So you, but you hashtag and you run out and talk about it. I, I've been guilty of that in the, t- in the past. I, I, I forget who it was. There was this like something was trending in the world and I just saw it was a hashtag and I used it before I even knew what was happening. So, I mean, I think many of us have been guilty of that, but I love this one point that they made was do something that nobody knows you did. Like do something, do something anti-racist, do something that is dismantling white supremacy, do something that is showing your support for the black community 
and tell no one about it. That, when I saw that, I, like, that's, that's huge. That's everything right there. That speaks to a motivation and a, and a realness of really wanting to help that isn't performative. You don't get, nobody claps, nobody claps or applauds you for that. No one pats you on the back. You just did something from a true place in your heart. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard you say over the past couple of weeks, I believe it was in one of your sermons from, I think it was two Sundays ago, that I thought was, um, I thought it was so good. It was, it, it was something that I think um, everybody needs to hear. And you, you, you broke down this idea of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and they're having this conversation and Jesus says, Hey, you know, if you've been so good at, you know, keeping all of the commandments, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And, uh, and it says that he walked away sorrowfully mm-hmm. and, and you, 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 you use this language and I just think it's, I think it's phenomenal of he wasn't willing to lay down his privilege. And it's this idea of, of giving away our privilege or lending our privilege to somebody that doesn't, that doesn't have it. Unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. It's both lending the privilege, but it's also first and foremost, recognizing that it's not something to be clinged to. So a couple of years back, I wrote a, I wrote an article called why we must abandon whiteness. And I had a South African white friend whose wedding I sang in and, and who Julie was in their wedding messaged me on Instagram and say, this is too much. And then they proceeded to unfollow me on Instagram. Um, the re- back into that story, just for, for the listeners to know, this person, Julie, recently had to call, you know, had, had the collector because she was on Instagram posting the Blackout Tuesday and saying, I stand in solidarity with my black brothers and sisters. And Julie's like, wow. <laughs> so anyway, but that was the, the point being in that is that she saw that article. And in that article, I talk about the construct of whiteness, not skin color, but the construct of whiteness that was invented by white slave owners so that they could maintain slavery by saying whiteness is fully human Blackness is three-fifths of human. So that's the construct that I'm talking about when I say we've got to abandon that. We have to leave that behind. We have to let that go. So and sometimes most when- people don't most people <clears throat> don't know. Sorry to cut you off. No, no uh, worries. But I I there's just there's just little things that you you've you keep saying that I want people to to understand. I don't want to I don't want to glaze over that. I, I don't think when I'm going to lunch with some white friends, I don't think any of them are thinking, you know, if our ancestors were sitting at the same table, my great, 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 great grandfather would have been seen as three fifths human. And that would be a normal thing. And I don't think people understand the gravity of how those thought patterns have infiltrated where we are today and, and what Absolutely. that does psychologically, generationally to, 
to people of color. So, so uh, unpack what 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 is yeah, the history yeah. on that? Okay. I, I, okay. I don't want to yeah, glaze yeah. over that. Does that make sense? So yeah, it makes total sense. Ryan, you you just said it. You speak to about seventy percent white audiences. And by the way, um, I, you know, I, I need people to know that I believe this. I think you're. I think you are one of the best communicators in the country. Like I, I, I am. I'm a. I am a fan of the way you put thoughts together and communicate them. Um, those. So you and you speak. You speak in a lot of churches. Let's rewind the clock. About seventy years. I want to say, if my math is correct. Um, the same white folks who would go, who now would come see you in church 70 years ago, if white folks were going to church in their Sunday best, they, their kids would be in Sunday school. They'd hear a message about Jesus and, and Jesus's um, salvation and the cross and how that cross of Jesus saved our lives. They would leave that church service at 1130, maybe go grab some lunch and then head to a public lynching of a black person uh, that that had been scheduled, so it's not like they like like Ahmaud Arbery wasn't a scheduled lynching. George George Floyd wasn't a scheduled lynching. These were flyers put up. These were merchandise sold at them. Pictures taken in front of dead black bodies to send to to relatives who weren't at the lynching after church. When you were talking about the dehumanization of black in contrast to white, when I say whiteness, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the construct that allows you to sit in church and hear about Jesus who was lynched by the Roman Empire and leave that and not even recognize that you are doing to black bodies what the Romans did to Jesus after you just heard about how evil and wicked it is. That is the dehumanization. That is what black folks are aware of. That is the trauma with which we carry in our bodies, whether we realize it or not. So when I start to talk about whiteness and this, this white friend of mine is like, is so appalled and offended that I would say, lay it down. She can't fathom that what I'm talking about laying down is that thing that allows you to look at George Floyd and say, I'm going to wait for all the facts. That thing that allows you to look at Ahmaud Arbery and go, well, he was, you know, walking through uh, houses and construction places. That thing that allows Candace Owens to say that, well, you know, George Floyd had a rap sheet. Those things that are dehuman, that the thing that allowed the police when they went into um, Botham John's apartment there in Dallas, when that white police officer went in and shot him, after he was shot, minding his own business in his house, he's a worship leader, they looked in his house for drugs. Why? What reason was there to search his house? But that's the dehumanization of black folks. So when I say abandon whiteness, I'm saying abandon that thing that makes you look at us like we're not human. Abandon that thing that gives you privilege. Abandon that thing that puts you here and me and my daughters down here. Abandon that thing that causes you to look at a resume and see a name that seems like it may be black. And that instant, like without you thinking about it, subconscious, implicit bias that shows up that makes you go, oh, that they may not be as hardworking as Emily. We need to abandon that thing. So what does it look like for someone to, to lend or lay down their privilege? 
So the lending of privilege is to say, I, I can't do anything about the fact that America is going to treat me a certain type of way because I'm white, right? So one of the greatest examples I've ever heard of, of someone whose skin tone is white and who is of European descent lending that privilege to a person of color was, and you, and you can follow her on, on Twitter. Her name is uh, Bree Newsom. I heard her speak once and she shared an, inc- I mean, the greatest story I've ever heard probably. And she's an incredible communicator as well. But she talked about how she, she climbed the flagpole in South Carolina to take down the Confederate flag. And the reason she took it down was because the, during the funeral processional for the folks that were killed by Dylan Roof in that uh, church shooting, that white, um, anti-black white supremacist uh, shooting, during the processional for these people who had been victimized by Dylan Roof in this hate crime, she saw that the American flag was at half-mast on that, on that walk. The Confederate flag was flying high in the sky. And she said, while walking in that processional, I got to take that down. So she organized something where she was going to go do this, got some people to help. And she went, she climbed that flagpole to take it down. While she was on that flagpole, the police showed up and they, they pulled out their tasers. She's on a metal pole. They pulled out tasers and they said, if you don't come down, you know, we're going to tase you. Well, they had killed her with that voltage going through that flagpole to her she would have died. There was a white ally with her. And I don't say this to Cynthia Irma make him a hero, but I say this to say what it's still like to lend your privilege, who put his hands on that flagpole. And to, until she came down, that to me is what it is to lend your privilege to say, I, I don't, I know that these police officers don't look at me the same way they look at pre Newsom up there. So there's nothing I can do about that. I can despise the fact that that's true, but I can't, but the reality is I have to accept that that's true. So I have to use that in this moment. If you go, if she gonna die, I'm gonna die. I have to use it in a moment where I get an opportunity to look at a resume and to give uh, a person of color an opportunity or not. To, I have to use it when I'm in the boardroom and I recognize that my boss could continue to interrupt my black coworker I recognize that the ideas that my black coworker puts forward are always rejected. I have to use my privilege to, to say, hey, I've noticed that this keeps happening. That's, it's called bystander intervention. It's what they talked about in, at Cornell. Is this bystander intervention is where I can lend the fact that you will listen to me. And there's, a fine, there's an art to this so that I don't center myself as the white savior, but that I can blend and say, hey, I noticed something's happening and I don't think it's okay. I stand with this person of color. So, Corey, how can people connect with you? They can go to CoreyEvanLeague.com and everything's there. Everything yeah, everything yeah. that you're doing, every podcast, every article is there. Um, they can catch your Facebook Lives. Um, you've got services on on Sunday and uh, I encourage you to check that that out. And man, I just, I, I so appreciate who you are and and the works that you're doing, uh, we we go about it completely different ways. And you know what I think I want to encourage everybody to do? I think we all should have somebody in our world that is doing it differently than us. Because in this time, I think we all want to follow all of the people that are tweeting 
and posting the same way that we do. And I just, I just value different opinions. I just value different perspectives. And, um, and I just really, really appreciate yours. And I hope that people, um, man, that they follow you and connect with you and, and, uh, and they learn what they can. And I hope that we're all listening to each other and that we're, uh, that we're not trying to, to figure out who is the most right. But I think, I think we should all be open to, to other people's perspectives because they are a tremendous amount of education that we would not have on our own. So man, thanks again for being on, on LifeCast with, with Ryan Lee. If you thought that this episode was helpful to you in any way, shape or form, please rate it, review it, share it, and please don't forget to subscribe. Uh-huh.